Cultivating Place is made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Alice Vincent is a multi-platform storyteller based in London. She is examining with gusto and curiosity the intricacies of words and language, of what it is to be human, to be a woman, and to be always in service to the wonders, large and small, grief-laden and joy-spangled of everyday life. She is the author of several previous books, including her nature memoir, Rootbound, Rewilding a Life. Alice goes by the name Nauticulture Online. For our final episode in a five-part series of Cultivating Place in honor of Women's History Month this year, I caught up with Alice just a few months ago to speak in depth about her newest book, Why Women Grow, Stories of Soil, Sisterhood, and Survival. It's a moving, verdant tapestry of Alice's own story as a woman going to ground. It is intertwined with the stories of women across Great Britain and beyond gardening and what that has meant to their own lives and to our collective understanding of both gardens and women. Alice, I am so pleased to welcome you to Cultivating Place. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you so much. I love this podcast. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) Introduce yourself a little more personally to my listeners and maybe include in that the role of plants and gardens and gardening in your life. Well, you did such a good job of it. I feel like I'm only going to pale in comparison. But yes, I'm a writer primarily. And I've been a career journalist for about 15 years, working in broadsheet newspapers in London. Um, As a gardener, I am self-taught. And I started to teach myself to garden on a balcony attached to a flat in South London nearly 10 years ago now. Um, And the two have always dovetailed for me. I understand the world by researching and writing about it. I've understood plants and my relationship to them by researching and writing about them. I am not an expert, but I am curious. And so now I am still living in South London and I have a garden, which is a real luxury here and one that I cherish. Um, And beyond my garden walls, it has a Victorian wall. Beyond that, I am in love with how the outdoor world intersects with the human one that we've made. And in somewhere like London, that's very keenly felt. In fact, about 20 minutes before I jumped on the call, I was taking a walk around um, the park nearby. And it was one of those really good January sunsets. Mm. The sky is amazing color. And these are the things that sort of motivate me, I suppose, The, the normal, cycles of of life that we can so easily overlook yeah you know and i think you bring this to to all of your work but those everyday ordinary gifts that the garden often offers to us if we have the time take the time make the time to see 100%. them yeah 100 yeah. 
So before we dive into your work, your your books, and specifically your most recent book, take us back a little bit. Share with listeners, and, and a lot of this is actually explored and unearthed in this book uh, and a, a, as you read through it. But tell people where you were born and raised and, and perhaps some of the earliest influences that would have grown you into a woman for whom this intersection between life outside and life inside, and I mean very internally, would be an important factor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I grew up uh, in the, what I frequently describe as the rural donut around a city called Milton Keynes, which in the UK is familiar, but I don't expect it to be to your American or international listeners. It's a new city. It was built in the 60s. And in the UK, it's a bit of a running joke. Uh, although it's got quite an interesting architectural uh, background. It's a rural backwater of Middle England, and I grew up in a village outside it in a thatched house with a long garden and quite a lot of adolescent listlessness. (laughs) (laughs) But essentially, I was a person who was fortunate enough to feel very comfortable outdoors, but was nevertheless not outdoorsy. I was a bookish child. I liked to read, I liked to draw, I liked to play video games. And although I had access to the countryside and the fields and a beautiful garden, it wasn't something that stirred me until I reached my mid-twenties, by which point I'd moved to London um, after a stint in places like Newcastle in England and New York in New Mm. York. And uh, London was a city that sort of scooped me up as a default because I wanted to be a journalist and I became one. There wasn't really anywhere else to do that uh, in the UK. So in my mid-twenties, everything on paper was looking pretty good. I had a job <laughs> as a music, yeah, it was like a job as a music journalist in a broadsheet newspaper uh, uh what I thought was a stable relationship um a nice place to live a few good holidays a year cool cool festival access whenever I wanted it mm. through my work you know on paper it looked great but I wasn't in hindsight enormously happy and when I was around 27 all of this broke so my relationship fell apart very suddenly I didn't have anywhere to live I was disenchanted with the job I'd been trying to get for 10 years. And it it became apparent after trying various other things that the one thing that could bring me back to not only myself, but a new, more meaningful way of living was to engage with the outside world through Mm. gardening. Yeah. And that was not something that people expected of a 20-something um, kind yeah. of me media type in London, and I didn't have a garden either. So it was it was um, an unexpected twist. But since then, I have really folded growing into my life in a really active way and in my work as well. Yeah, yeah, and that crystallizing moment leads you to this beautiful balcony garden. Um, beautiful in terms of maybe not perfect magazine photos, but Mm -hmm. of this meaningful relationship that teaches Mm -hmm. you so many things. And a lot of that is encased or, or held in the book root bound. Um, And in fact, 
uh, which is your which is your first book, I believe, correct? Yes, I had a pra- I had a small practical book before it called How to right. Grow Stuff. But yes, yes, in terms of kind of narrative nonfiction and memoir, Rootbound is Rootbound's where it all begins. Right, and so that year is what year? So that was 2016. The events of Rootbound okay. were the end of 2016 and the start of 2017. Okay. Take us to like the germination story for the locus of this work. Like, what? When did you say to yourself, "I want to do this other book, and this is what it's going to be about"? And, and maybe you had a germination story that said, "I'm I'm going to do another book, and it's about this," and then it actually became more about this but you know right from the get-go uh we as readers can see in the book that this is going to be um an interwoven personal and public uh interface between your life and the lives of other women growing um and that it's going to kind of keep pushing up against our societal views on women, on femininity, on womanhood. Right. Marriage, marriage, children, like the whole thing gets thrown in pretty quickly. (laughs) I love that you picked up on the, that little link between Rootbound and Why Women Grow, which is of course the balcony. So Rootbound ends with me finally after 15 months gaining a new space of my own after all of this aforementioned upheaval and moving into what became in a sort of Virginia Woolf way, a room of my own. I was very fortunate to have a place of independence that I could be Mm -hmm. my own woman. Mm -hmm. And then about a month before lockdown, and we had a lot of lockdowns in the UK, uh, my partner moved into that space and it was meant to be temporary. And, um, Obviously, it was not. (laughs) Things did not go to plan. And then we ended up leaving that that space after quite an eventful few months. You know, we got engaged on this new balcony. We we uh, we had we generated this kind of completely unexpected happiness in a very strange time during what was a very warm spring and uh, on this balcony. And so but at the same time. I was in a moment of kind of creative and career-based upheaval because six weeks earlier I'd released Rootbound and it was all mm. terribly exciting and it was yeah. in the window of all these bookshops in town and, and everyone was, you know, had a string of events lined up and then obviously the lockdown happened and, and all mm. of that stopped and I I worried and I was I was completely cult like creatively devoid I was working very hard everyone wanted gardening based (laughs) content so I was I was busy but I was worried that I had one chance to write a book and it had been stolen from me and that I wouldn't write another so there never really was a moment where I was like I want to write another book I desperately wanted to but I didn't really know what it was going to be and um I remember in in that summer while we were in that flat with the balcony where we got engaged my partner asked me what I was curious about. And I said, there's something in why we grow. There's something in why we do that, that I want to uncover. And I want to talk to people about it. And at that time, it wasn't even women. It was just people. 
I'm mm-hmm. one of the first mm-hmm. people I and, and and his advice was very good. He he said, you know, you're struggling because you're trying to think of an idea for a book when actually mm-hmm. you need to think about something that's going to motivate you, regardless of what form that might take. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is very good advice. And yeah, so I was I gonna just... say, I love Matt right there. Like kudos <laughs> to Matt. His job is to uh, make things happen in a creative capacity in the theater so he's Mm. yeah he's very very good as a sounding board um he's also one of the very few people I trust to read my work and his opinions on the book were actually really interesting but I didn't let him read it for a very very long time so that's another that's another tangent but yeah and so that I was actually in the bath when I realized that it had to be just about women it was one of those proper light bulb moments. I was like, oh, this has just got to be about women, actually. Like, our stories are not told enough. And obviously, Jennifer, you have been speaking to amazing women about their relationship with the natural world for a very long time. But you are rare in doing that. We don't have that many books about this. We don't have that many compendiums of gardening history for women. In the British media landscape, which is one of the kind of Uh, more established media landscapes for gardening you won't see that many women you see Monty Don you see Alan Titchmarsh and there are a handful of women broadcasters but they're the same ones you certainly don't see ordinary women domestic gardeners and um, I suppose I wanted to tell their stories yeah yeah And so this all comes to why women grow stories of soil, sisterhood, and survival. And I just, I can't give it a glowing enough uh, report to listeners. It is a, it is a lovely, compelling and thought provoking read on personal and much larger scales as well. And, you know, to address what you said, I mean, I, I think, you know, my story is not dissimilar from yours. The Earth in Her Hands, uh, 75 Extraordinary Women Working in the World of Plants, is it it published on March 3rd, 2020. Mm. And uh, the same exact thing happened to me. And one of the things I really loved about reading this book, Alice, was that in doing my research for The Earth in Her Hands, which is very focused on the stories of really extraordinary women who have pushed the boundaries of what our public and professional horticultural worlds entail and can mean in this world, I interviewed 75 women and I got all of these extraordinary personal stories. And yet that's not the what I was telling. What I was telling was a different kind of um, angle or or lens on why this was important. And I, I was left with so many beautiful memories of mm. stories handed to me about marriage and childbearing or choosing not to have children or gardens lost and gardens found. And it was very moving to me. Mm. But you have then taken that concept and put it into a book. And I just, it was deeply satisfying to read the book and about the the women. So I will stop going on and on. That means a great deal though. Thank you. Because I was very conscious of your work and I was conscious of the, you know, the earth in her hands and that you had gone and done that really important work first. And 
I think, especially as women, we are so often pitted against each other or you see one person mm-hmm. doing something and you think, oh, well, that's it. That's done. And actually, I think right, right. you created you created the space to uphold the rest of those stories to come. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're joined this final week of Women's History Month by writer, storyteller, and gardener Alice Vincent. Her newest book, Why Women Grow, Stories of Soil, Sisterhood, and Survival, published this month, March of 2023. We'll be right back for more with Alice after a quick break. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. This year's application period for the Garden Conservancy's Garden Futures Grants Initiative, through which general operating grants typically ranging from $5,000 to $10,000 are awarded to small public gardens and nonprofit organizations making a significant impact in their communities through garden-based programming is coming up. So, Get your small public garden or garden-related nonprofit application in to the Garden Conservancy's Garden Futures Grants by April 15th. For all the details, head on over to gardenconservancy.org. While you're at the Garden Conservancy website, make sure to check out some of the other ways the Garden Conservancy is helping to preserve gardens as vital cultural resources. One such garden is Blythewood, a nationally significant Beaux-Arts Italianate garden with important connections to the evolution of American landscape design. It's one of the few Hudson River estate gardens that remains intact from the Gilded Age, and it's over a hundred years old. But Blythewood has been hard hit by the passage of time, and the Garden Conservancy has partnered with Bard College on this garden's restoration. On April 23rd, the Garden Conservancy and Bard College will host an afternoon panel discussion at Blythewood's historic mansion and garden to discuss the significance of the gardens as well as the challenges of preserving these spaces. A short documentary film about Blythewood's rich preservation story will premiere at the event featuring Bard alumna and award-winning actress Blythe Danner. Purchase your tickets for Vision and View, creating a classical landscape on the Hudson, online at gardenconservancy.org.
I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with the United Kingdom's Alice Vincent, writer, gardener, and now podcaster. As we come back to our conversation, we dive into the poignant and compelling inquiries in her newest book, Why Women Grow. And that was one of the greatest lessons. And now, you know, two years down the line, um, and having had a chance to reflect, it feels almost naive to think that I was going to go out and get a clean answer to this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and yet that was kind of what what drew me on, certainly for the first handful of interviews. I was like, oh, there's got to be an answer. Mm. And there are many answers and the answer is yeah. complicated. And of course yeah. it is because womanhood is complicated and yeah. life Don't is complicated, right? And <laughs> the spaces, if anything, that complication was so beautiful because the other thing mm. that these conversations showed me was that we are constantly, as women, shoved into tiny little boxes that we feel we should conform to and frequently we don't and there's that tussle and that tension between what we feel we should be and what Mm -hmm. we are pushing against and so that was that was at hand both in every conversation I was having but also with this sort of conversation I was having with myself uh, which was I had been a woman who for the majority of my adulthood didn't think I'd ever get married and yet here I was engaged to be married right I didn't think I was going to have children I'm talking to you and I'm 33 weeks pregnant. So, you know, yeah, I I wasn't going to ask, but I was, I was wondering, (laughs) don't get me wrong. Yeah. So I had a lot of my own thinking to do. And and I am someone who, who works stuff out by questioning in a very literal sense. And so that for me, I needed to selfishly speak to all of these different manifestations of searing, fierce, abundant, generous womanhood in order to understand that whatever womanhood I wanted to undertake was going to be legitimate. Because even as someone who's been fortunate enough to be raised by incredible women, I still was frustrated by the demonstration of femininity that I thought I had to ascribe to. Right, right. I am imagining a whole lot of nodding heads out in the audience right now when you say that. So, Okay, so the book is arranged into 13 named chapters, and there is a a beautiful introduction and a beautiful epilogue that frame these. Each chapter is a place name, and within each chapter, you, Alice, this inquiring and sometimes um, unsettled woman who is about to, you know, literally give up her space of her own in order to integrate her 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 love into her life and to make that um, merging and, you know, in some ways compromise, which is both beautiful and um, you know, can be unsettling. Uh, and you 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 begin to work with this idea of asking other women very openly why why they they garden and grow and so there's i think you mentioned at some point that there are you ultimately narrow this down to 50 but you interweave them it's not like each chapter is one woman each chapter kind of entails several stories of women interwoven and um so my first question to you is and I think maybe it's going to come back to this 
recurring theme already in what your answers have been about the importance of space, how we make space, how we are allotted space, how we inhabit space, and how women, especially women of color or women of little means um, and advantages in our world, um, aren't aren't given space, aren't allowed space. So why is each chapter a place name? What does that what did that signify for you? So I will, um, I'm going to give my fantastic editor, Helena, due um, credit here. And that was her suggestion when she gave back the first very huge mm. structural edit on the book. And she has always been a huge supporter and, and had great ambitions for the book and something that she wanted to do, which was such a ongoing continuation of the generosity that made this book happen on behalf of everyone I spoke to was she wanted to give these places significance so that people who read the book may want to then go and visit them and attach their own meaning to those spaces which I thought was just such a brilliant idea but um, I suppose in regards to how I chose you're right, I spoke to 45 women, they were all in their growing spaces. That was really important to me that we were in those spaces. Mm-hmm. And um, and a lot of them were kind of in London, but I also went as far as remote islands of Denmark. I know that you've spoken to Camilla um, yeah. before, so you know, you know how rewarding that experience is. Um, but also uh, all over the country, as far as we could go in lockdown. And there's a sense of reclamation there. These spaces yeah. became new in the understanding of the conversation that's what had there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there I got to some point in the book and there is this beautiful sentence and it's towards the end, I think. And it says, place can be very important. And when I read that, I then sort of all of a sudden had a light bulb moment of like, wait, all of these chapters are named after a place. And you're not only in that place through the course of any given chapter, but it's maybe a kind of centerpiece or articulated joint in each of the chapters, that one place. And tell listeners how you, for the most part, because some of them are lifelong friends, but Mm. how you came to know the women who then inhabit these places that you Mm. visit and, um, and lean into Alice. Yeah. So I'd say um, they have become lifelong friends, (laughs) some of them. Yeah. But uh, in in that first initial instance of pulling the list together, there was only really one person that I would consider Really, and at that point, it was an acquaintance rather than a friend. So the vast majority of all of these women were strangers um, or people I had admired from afar. So uh, as you know, you discussed earlier, I'd been writing about gardening in various different ways. And as part of my journalistic research, I'd come across women who are doing interesting things. But I'm so glad that you brought up the notion of women from uh, marginalized backgrounds because I was very mm. conscious that I, as a white middle class urban woman I could only reach so far and so I um, created a survey and um, it was a very simple survey it asked some very basic demographic information and um, it asked the question what drew you to gardening and I put that online and it received around 700 responses within a matter of days 
Right, um, right. And that was that completely broadened my search. And right. I also did quite a lot of outreach. So I went to charities and I went to people who worked with refugees. I went with people who worked with prisoners. I approached fertility networks. Um, for me, if I could make um, an outreach to someone who had literally no idea who I was or what I did, that was the most successful thing I could have done. Um, because I felt that it it just completely equalized the whole situation. Mm. Um, and so, yes, th- there was a very uh, a huge part of the work in do in researching the book was making sure that while I know I could never tell every story, that I certainly wasn't just telling one type of story. Right, right. And I think that that incredible outflowing of response, really tapped into um, the intensity, but also, again, this word complexity of why people garden, what keeps, what what takes them there in the first place, as well as what keeps them there and, and what it um, allows them of themselves in this world somehow. And, you know, and so, so now I'd love to have you get into a little bit of how you chose uh how you chose the women that are included in and I would guess like me there was this sense of I I want to include them all like how can you yeah. how can you narrow it down and yet you have to because yeah. that's life and reality um walk us through a, a couple of the maybe and you could maybe start with right from the beginning with with Marshall or you can start with you know wherever wherever it comes in because there are these constant um contrasts that become two sides of the same coin you know whether it's how we see mothering and and whether or not you Alice want to be a mother and how other women have handled either being a mother or choosing not to be a mother not being able to become a mother and or even losing a child and having an, a a garden hold that for you i mean I mean, I, yes, let's talk about motherhood, because as you say, you know, the book does deal with lots of other issues besides. Um, but I do think that let's start with Marcel, who is um, a wonderful, fascinating person um, who trained as a psychologist and practiced as one and then took a career break to raise her two small children. And she's a writer as well. And she's got a book coming out about her oh. own garden next year. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. So um that's definitely one to look out for but um Marshall took me in to her garden which was I mean in, in America you guys drive a long way all the time but we don't so much over here so she was a kind <laughs> of three hour drive which for us is a long drive uh <laughs> down the motorway a very beautiful autumn day uh to a gorgeous I mean your classic chocolate box bit of Somerset really really beautiful and um, Marcel moved to the UK uh, from Trinidad when she was a teenager and came here to study and then she settled here and she was the second person I interviewed um, the chronology of the book bends a little bit just to as you say try and fit everything in and she was the one who made me realize that there was something in this question why do you grow? Because when I said, why do you garden? 
um, after, you know, we'd probably spent maybe an hour and a half together, she said, because I needed to feel mothered. Right. And it was a beautiful moment right in that first chapter. I went, oh, right. And it was, it was, I mean, even just thinking about it now, I'm getting pretty goosebumpy uh, under my million jumpers uh, here in January in London. But um, yeah, and she spoke about the women who had raised her and the, but how when she was studying in Oxford, she would go to the Botanic Gardens just to smell the humidity of the air because it made mm. her feel like she mm. was at home in Trinidad. And um she, we didn't even really speak that much about her own children, but this notion of inheritance, of finding plants as something to look after you, when so often we associate gardening with nurturing, was a really interesting concept for me. And I was like, okay, that's interesting that this is worth pursuing. Because at this point, you know, the notion of writing a book, selling a book, proposing a book, on this was a complete fantasy. It was very much a, well, you've got to go and do your research and see if there's something out there. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're joined this final week of Women's History Month 2023 by writer, storyteller, and gardener Alice Vincent, who is also now a mother. Her newest book, Why Women Grow, Stories of Soil, Sisterhood, and Survival, published this month, March of 2023. We'll be back after a quick break for more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. I got to meet so many listeners this past few weeks, and I want to tell you, your words of encouragement and connection in person to the mission of Cultivating Place always, always falls on grateful ears. So a shout out to Drs. Marcia Nelson and Patricia Hadley and their wonderful assistants at Enlo Medical Center in Northern California. Shout out to the Redbud chapter of the California Native Plant Society and the master gardeners of Nevada and Placer counties who hosted a truly energizing event in Grass Valley this past weekend. Thank you to Sandy, Chrissy, Denise, Jean, Heidi, Starr, and so many more for the communion of garden souls. I look forward to seeing and meeting so many more of you in the coming weeks at Annie's Annuals for the April 1st celebration of Native Bees and on April 27th at the Minneapolis Institute of Art for an address in honor of their annual Art in Bloom. It's the art of the bloom, the root, the bud, and the seed that has us growing this time of year, doesn't it? Can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> hallelujah. I thought so. We're back now to our conversation with Alice Vincent, writer, gardener, and now mother 
and podcaster as we come back to her conversation about her newest book and podcast, Why Women Grow, for which she spent 15 months interviewing all kinds of women from around Great Britain and beyond, beginning in October of 2021. As we come back, Alice is sharing about another one of the women whose stories is held in the book and whose story demonstrates the immense capacity of our gardens to hold not only our joys, but our most searing grief. By the time it reached June, I was in the garden created by a woman called Fiona. And she makes an interesting diametric to Marshall because Fiona does is a mother. Um, she's a mother of living children, but she's also a mother of a child who is not living. And her firstborn child, that child was called Willow. Um, and very sadly, she died mm. a matter of hours upon um, Fiona being admitted to hospital to give birth to her. And I knew that if I was going to write about nurture and I was going to write about motherhoods, I had to write about what happened if you didn't want children, but also if you couldn't have children or very sadly, if you had had children who hadn't lived because life is more complicated Uh than simply having children uh, and that in that notion. And so Fiona very generously Um, And it's funny because I'm sitting here and it's dark and it's January and it was around that time of year, three years ago now, I think it must have been, um, that I emailed Fiona. And she uh, very generously said she would speak to me, but she's also very used to speaking to people about it, not because she gives a lot of interviews, but because in the wake of Willow's passing, Fiona, who is a journalist, wrote a very, very beautiful piece about what it is to lose a baby. And she interviewed a lot of other women about it too. And she says that she still gets a handful of emails every week about this Mm. um, from other women who have endured what she has been through. And so one of the things that she did in, um, in the grief of losing Willow was to create Willow a garden uh, in her own back garden and she invited me there and it was I mean I'm a bit lost for words it was the greatest honor to sit somewhere that held so much meaning mm-hmm. yeah it was such a meaningful space and it wasn't maudlin and it wasn't um melancholy even but it was a place that it was quite extraordinary how so much meaning, even if you didn't have any understanding of why that garden existed, you would feel something upon walking in there. Mm-hmm. And while we were there, something that didn't get into the book, but Fiona mentioned was that um, she has some friends who are um, Muslim and have young children. And one of the children was there at a family event. And she asked Fiona, if she could go and pray in the in the garden, mm. um, which I think for me really sums up what kind of sanctuary it was. It's an incredibly peaceful place, but she spoke about you know the um, she wanted to she made this uh, garden and it was it wasn't just planting some things. It was like you know leveling ground mm-hmm. and removing trees. And I remember saying to her that that's a really ambitious thing to do 
in the wake of what you went through. I underlined this this place right here. I underlined. Okay, keep going. Okay, well, you're probably you're probably better at quoting it than me. But she replied saying it had to be ambitious because it had to be as ambitious as it would be if I had been raising her. And now I know that I've said that probably but wrong, but essentially she wanted to put as much into yeah. this garden as she would have had Willow lived and she was raising her as a child. Right. And it is not shared in a maudlin way or a stuck way. It It's shared in a way, um, the way you offer us, the readers, this story and um, Fiona's uh, garden as a verb, not a noun, is is a reminder of how our gardens and our gardening can help us process and compost all kinds and, and transform, right? That's the point of the compost is it transforms it into into the life cycle that is ongoing rather than than getting stuck in a place and um, not having, uh, it, you know, it's not an anaerobic mess. It is a, a beautiful living process and, and, and the, life goes on and life goes on. And, and the garden gives us this kind of, I don't know, comfortable um, intimacy with death over and over again and, and reminds us that mm. it's part right. And, and you talk about this, um, in many ways, uh, in the in the book, um, there there are several women who who hold this idea, and their gardens are embodying this idea. You know, and of course, you can't really have a book about why women grow and not include some bigger issues. Um, and and I will just say, Alice, I so enjoyed and admired how you offer these stories, and you you touch on. Very importantly, you touch on the bigger Im implications in this gentle but resolute association between why we grow as women and the implications of that to larger global issues such as politics and food security and sexism and racism and all kinds of social justice and, and violence against women. And yet you are never heavy handed with that. You you offer you offer the association, you repeat it throughout the book so that we know it is not just a token gesture, but you keep coming back to this more important primary thread of the personal reasons that we, that we mm. garden. Um, well, because the political starts with the person yes, so often. Yes. And I, I think one of the things that I find most frustrating and that I really, f I feel I would have absolutely failed with this had the book been merely a demonstration of how nice privileged ladies go to their gardens and that that happens and that's a delight and I'm really glad that's in people's lives but one of the problems that English gardening in particular has is this kind of false belief that it's only for a certain class of people and a certain type and a certain demographic of people we are a rich and beautiful diverse country of people who know how to usher things from the earth and it it was really important for me to constantly remind people of that I, hopefully I, don't, I appreciate you saying it wasn't heavy-handed but um but to say to celebrate it yeah say look how every different way we can do this and isn't that more interesting than people just pruning mm. their roses in the same way right 
Right. Okay. So here's another question about process and style and editorial decision-making. I think I'm right in saying that except in one case, which I think is um, later in the book with two two women who garden together, except in that case, you never use last names. Is this correct? Is this a, a sort of, is this a, an, a nod to privacy or is this a resistance to patriarchy or is it both? Oh, I love that question. It was a nod to privacy. Um, And the reason why those women later on had surnames was because they are women of note. And I thought that was important to introduce because we talk about their work and therefore you need to know their surnames in order to know what their work is. Otherwise it'd be, it would be a bit clumsy. Um, it was a nod to privacy. I was really conscious when I was making these approaches um, that I was asking a huge amount. And it, I am amazed that actually um, of the asks I put out, everyone but one person said yes. And the person who said no sent me a very, actually what was actually quite a heartbreaking email because she very graciously outlined all the things that she would have talked about um, and the reasons why she didn't want to talk about them. Yeah. And I totally respected that. But the journalist in me really wanted to talk with her. Right. And not even necessarily right. print her stories. Right, right, right. But, but to hear them. And, um, but yeah, people were so generous and so much more generous than I anticipated. But one of the ways that I wanted people to feel comfortable was to say, look, we'll anonymize you to a certain extent. Um, if you want to have your name changed, we can do that. We didn't actually end up doing that. But, you know, yes, there are place names, but you wouldn't be able to really geographically locate that many people, really. Right. Um, you wouldn't really know what their jobs were. You know, there there are certain things, and that, that was why I stuck to those names. Um, but I also do love this notion of rejecting uh patriarchal norms Mm. as someone who uh doesn't have her husband's name and is currently in the midst of trying to work out what on earth you do with a shared child's surname (laughs) so yeah yes and you but but i'm guessing you bear your father's name i bear my father's name correct yeah the way we all do for the most part right And there was a lot of uncovering the legacy that my mother and my grandmother had given me and my paternal grandmother, Mm. what these legacies had been that I had just subsumed without recognition. Right. Um, I I will say as a mother of a a two 20-something, young 20-somethings, daughters, whom whom I adore beyond all gardens, um, which is saying something, Alice. Uh, and and that that dilemma, again, right from the start with your description of um, Jamaica Kincaid laughing uh, about having to choose between her children and the garden and almost always choosing the garden. Not, not really, <laughs> not really kids, um, is this, um, that moment where you say, you go back and you visit your old your your childhood home and the garden and you you recognize the beauty your mother surrounded you all with that you were that you 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 didn't see but you you grew from the advantages of that beauty and that was it was a right. lovely moment so yeah, i mean what i want to do is sit here with you all day and talk about each of <laughs> women and all that you get to like 
control versus surrender, losing ourselves to find ourselves, the very unsettling difference between those things we do for ourselves and those things we do performatively for others and to be witnessed or approved or lauded, whatever. Um, There's a lovely, lovely thread through the book about gardening as an acquisitive act versus an inquisitive act, which I think is something all gardeners need to pay attention to. Um, What are your greatest hopes for the impact of this work as it continues to evolve, especially as you are about to launch the podcast, Why Women Grow, which will include voices not in the book, um, some known, some unknown, but women talking together. Like, what do you hope from this work, Alice? So it's a really good question. And Jennifer, you've released enough public facing um, valuable work to know that these things are frequently, by the time they exist, they're kind of out of our control. Mm. And that's a really that's a really beautiful and challenging thing yeah. simultaneously like children uh, themselves right. <laughs> yes indeed as I will come to discover um for me the book has already achieved a level of success in the sense that um to briefly return to process before before anyone beyond the editorial team read the book I submitted each chapter to the women who featured in it. Mm. It was very, very important to me that although they were anonymized, these women were comfortable and supported in the way that they'd been presented. Um, And, you know, I was fully prepared for them to say, I hate it, I don't want it, take it out. Um, What I was not prepared for was the response that I got, which... um, was was the kind of st- stuff that I will hold for a long time um, that they had felt seen, that they had been portrayed in ways they didn't realize that people saw them in, that they appreciated what had been said, that they were able to understand how their lives had moved on from that difficult moment. Mm-hmm. And that for me, honestly, that's success enough. Yeah. Having said that, um, I hope that it makes women feel seen. Mm. I hope that it makes people feel legitimate in telling their own stories. I hope that it shows the broader gardening landscape that women matter and that women are a huge part of its existence. And I hope it encourages people who probably are really active domestic gardeners but don't consider themselves valuable in that way to realize how integral they are to the maintenance of the natural world around us um and with regards to the podcast um yeah so essentially i wrote the book and i was like there's still so much more (laughs) there are still so many more stories and because the, the book is made of conversations something happens when you take a conversation and you put it down on a page mm. and sometimes that means you can boil it down to its essence and elevate it and and also pick out certain points but it also means that you lose a lot of the life you you don't I can't explain what someone's voice sounds right. like any better than hearing it so yeah we we spent 
again, longer than anticipated, uh, three seasons from late spring to um, late autumn last year, traveling around the country, speaking to women such as Sarah Raven, novelist Sally Vickers, Claire Rattanen, who I know has been on Cultivating Place, mm-hmm. um, women who, some of whom were known for growing, but again, like the book, women who you might not primarily realize were gardeners. Right. Um, and those conversations, again, really interesting, um, always surprising, and it's wonderful to have their voices and one of the nicest things so far about the podcast, uh, which has only been released in trailer form so far and has been so warmly received, it's quite astounding for me at least, is that um, a number of young mothers and busy women who frankly are never going to pick up my book because they just don't have the time are going to be able to listen to these stories and get a sense of what it is while they're doing the school run or cleaning up or juggling the 85 million things that they've got to do that day. And that for me is uh, really gratifying. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you, Jennifer. You open the book with reading your own tarot cards. Yes. And identifying that if, if, listeners out there are familiar with any tarot deck. This is not about witchcraft and it's not really about reading the future, but it's about getting a sense of who you are and where you are by what you bring to how you see what cards come up. And um, mm-hmm. much like a much like a garden does, we get out of it what we bring to it. And sometimes that it grows us um, if we're lucky. And in the in the very end, you get to, you know, this question, why why do women grow? And what does that mean about womanhood or femininity or our world? And y- y- there's a lot of I don't knows, right? There's a I don't know if I'm if I'm, you know, gonna be a great wife. I don't know if I'm gonna have children. I don't know, blah, blah, blah. But you do get to this lovely paragraph about why women grow. I'm wondering if you could find that and perhaps read it to us. Off I go. As the seasons folded into one another, I collected my findings like seeds, carefully extracting the hard little beads of promise from the fluff of their protective casings, tucking them safely away into labelled envelopes. I saw connections between desire and resilience, perseverance and power, curiosity and motherhood. Often, I felt overwhelmed by the heft of these stories. It was difficult to hear them, to take them, without feeling indebted in some way. Women grow to create life and food and beauty. Women grow to conjure substance from the scruff of land. Women grow because they see potential in the hard-rolled nuggets of clay and promise beneath the tangles of ancient shrubs. Women grow because it makes something of nothing, because they see that broader changes can come from those they make in the small patch beneath their feet. Women grow because they are heavy with sadness or solitude or grief. Women grow because it is in their bones. Women grow because raising a garden can forge connective tissue to something lost. Women grow to pass on power, to honor the knowledge their foremothers have gathered for centuries. Women grow because the earth can swallow feelings that the air can't. Women grow because sometimes rage can only be mollified by digging until the sweat trickles down their backs. Women grow because in doing so they can make space, 
sometimes silently, sometimes by stealth, that nobody expects them to occupy. Women grow because it offers them control in a world determined to rid them of it. Women grow because they are curious and canny and they are compelled to. Alice Vincent, thank you very much for being a guest today. It has been a great pleasure to speak with you. I've loved it. Thank you, Jennifer, for your time. And as I say, it's still so tough to be here. I really appreciate it. Alice Vincent is a multi-platform storyteller based in London, examining with gusto and curiosity the intricacies of words and language, of what it is to be human, to be a woman, to be a gardener, and to be always in service to the wonders of everyday life. She is the author of several books, including her first nature memoir, Rootbound, Rewilding a Life, and her newest title, as well as the title of her new podcast, Why Women Grow. Alice goes by the name Nauticulture Online. Oh, I love you more and more. For speaking of plants and place this week, we head back to Alice Vincent to hear more about the three plants she would not want to garden without at this period in her life. Yeah. So it's such a good question because it changes. And traditionally, my go-to answer for this is sweet peas, which had a huge part in root burn that I love. And you know what, Jennifer, I've not sown them this year because life got in the way and we're probably digging up the garden in spring. And it was just another thing to coddle. And I've made peace with the fact that the sweet peas I have this year, I'll probably be getting from the flower market up the road uh, after waking up at some ungodly hour with a baby strapped to me rather <laughs> than from my own garden. Um, that's a story Sarah tells, Sarah Raven tells in the podcast, actually, that she she went um, to the flower market early with her, her baby. But so it, it's not sweet peas anymore. It won't be sweet peas next year, but it will be ferns which I adore and are so resilient. And even on grim wintry days like today, they're still, they just keep going on. Um, and I'm going to put more of them in. It will be fennel, which I love because it grows so tall and so cheery. And even when we had horrible drought here last year, it still looked good in the garden. And it it's just miraculous. You don't do anything to it. I know for some places it's very invasive, um, but... I love it. And a third one, I'm actually putting more roses into the garden, which is something that I never would have thought I'd have done. <laughs> but they smell beautiful. And I want them to surround a kind of arbor over a bench where I intend on sitting for great stretches of time uh, <laughs> this summer. And I just want to I just want to smell them. And one of the ones that I have bought to plant is named after Mary Delaney, who is one of the first women we meet in the book. Yes. And she is not living. Right. She is uh, alive in the 18th century. But yes, the spirit of Mary Delaney in the garden is something I can get on board with. 
Join us again next week when we kick off April in celebration of some outstanding gardens, gardeners, and garden ethics rooted in the American Midwest. We'll start off chatting once again with the man behind Monarch Gardens out of Nebraska, Benjamin Vogt. His newest book, which is out now, is Prairie Up, an introduction to natural garden design. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. The program is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and of the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, Enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.